Well, when we come to uh, particularly verses 28 to verse 31 of Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we're coming to a section where the focus of the preacher is going to be on the uh, aspect of faith that might be most central to our understanding of what it really means to follow Jesus and that he's going to focus his attention on, an, on the aspect of faith that trusts in God's deliverance. Uh, in fact, as you just gaze through those verses, 28 to 31, you see deliverance is a reoccurring theme there. And uh, when it comes to living a life of faith, when it comes to trusting in God and all His promises, it really is this idea of deliverance that's right at the center of things when we think about uh, what it means for us to turn our trust, our belief, our reliance toward God and what He provides. And so as we think about uh, approaching this topic this morning in these verses, uh, we're, we're going to do so in this way. I want to I read you two, two quotes to begin with. Um, they're both from H.G. Wells, you know uh, the, the author H.G. Wells, and these two quotes are written um, exactly nine years apart, and I just want you to, to hear how H.G. Wells uh, thinks about uh, our existence as humanity. This is, this is what he says, first of all, this is 1936, he says this, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imagination? that it will achieve unity and peace and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going from, a, from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state form the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. It's quite the high view, isn't it? A very nice and, and, and wonderful statement about the potential of humanity. Now, fast forward 10 years in H.G. Wells' life, a life filled with observation as he looks at the world around him and he makes this comment. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. That's his comment 10 years later. What a dramatic difference between those two statements, isn't it? Here's here, here he is looking at humanity on the one hand and saying we are in this wonderful place of flourishing and everything is going to be okay, to ending, at least further on in his life, finding himself in this place of despair, recognizing that the initial hope he had for humanity is undone by human interaction and their conditions in the world around them, world wars and so on. The hope that he had has been crushed by the reality of humans in their sin and the experience in the world around us. And as we think about that, particularly from the perspective of faith, we recognize that there is a unique element of the Christian faith that allows a person to sit with both those realities, both the potential that's there for humanity, but also the deep depravity that's there for humanity. Uh, there's something about the Christian faith, faith that allows us to recognize those two things without finding us ultimately in a place of deep discouragement and ultimate, and ultimate despair, uh, such as H.G. Such as Wells found himself in. And, and, and what makes the difference for us as Christian believers is we have this gift from God that we call faith. The gift of God of, uh, that we call faith comes to us, and it gives us a kind of newness of heart that helps us see that the way things are now are not the way things will always be. And we know this is a theme that runs through Hebrews chapter 11. The author begins Hebrews chapter 11 by speaking about the essence of faith. 
And that essence of faith, as we saw, is that kind of title deed to heaven that God has put in our hearts that helps us look forward to the future through whatever good things we may be facing and seeing, through whatever bad things we may be facing and seeing. It allows us to look forward through our current circumstances to the future with a hope that transcends this life. And so faith is described in the beginning of, of Hebrews chapter 1 as this reality of what is hoped for. That's, that's what faith is. It's this kind of proof. It's this title deed of what is not yet seen. And we know because we have our Bibles open that that faith reflects a gift that God has given to us by grace where instead of our hearts ultimately turning inward or only outward, hoping to find some sort of eternal resolution in those places, instead, faith sets down an awareness in our hearts of the eternal realities of future salvation that is still to come. And as a result, the entirety of our life is lived in a totally different way, which of course is what we see play out all through Hebrews chapter 11. We know from Hebrews chapter 11 that the author has great purpose in desiring for us to understand fully and clearly what it means for us to live as people of faith. The first audience we know was struggling with these things. They were struggling uh, to know what it really looked like to pursue faith in Jesus Christ as they were distracted and tempted away from the fullness of what is offered in Christ. They needed to know what it looks like to live a life of sturdy trust in God in the midst of all the different things that they may be facing. And so the preachers offered all these different examples that, uh, that help underpin our own understanding, give us a whole picture of what it really looks like to live by faith. And as we come to these verses this morning, particularly verses 28 to 31, we have this unique section where the focus of the preacher's comments surround the topic of the fact that we as Christian believers have this effect of faith in our hearts, this gift that's been given to us by God, the effect of faith in our hearts is to trust in God's deliverance. Uh, we are compelled by the reality of heaven's down payment in our soul that God is the one who will ultimately bring us through, preserve us, protect us, keep us from the dangers we face, and bring us forward to our eternal home. And it's this deliverance again that we see uh, rising up uh, through, through these various uh, stories that are very briefly recounted for us here, but they're stories that are familiar to us in, in such a way that we probably have them in our minds. So, so if you just look at verse 28, uh, I'm just going to read this again. So we have this fresh. We have these four accounts of deliverance that are here. And the first account there is, is that of Moses instituting the Passover. So by faith, he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. So there's that one. We remember that story from, uh, from Exodus where uh, Moses told the people to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. And in that final plague of judgment upon Egypt, because Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go, the Israelites are preserved while those who are uh, in Egypt, the firstborn male, both animal and human, uh, in all the families is, is put to death. So there's deliverance there. And then in verse 29, we read about how by faith, they, the Israelites, crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. Uh, so there's another expression of, of deliverance there. God is delivering them from that imminent danger of the army, the, the, uh, the, the Egyptian army encroaching upon them. There they're delivered from that uh, situation as God makes a way for them through the sea. And then in verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. 
So if you remember that story, uh, really that ranges from Joshua chapter 2 to 6 about, about Jericho being that massive fortress there in the land of promise. So the Israelites are coming into the promised land, except what do they find? Well, there's this enormous fortress that seems to be, uh, by all accounts, preventing them from fully realizing the promises of God. There's this, there's this wall in front of them. How are, we going to, how are we going to conquer this land God has given us with Jericho there in the midst of it? Of course, God uh, works a mighty deliverance for them there and brings those walls tumbling down. And then last of all, we read about Rahab. So by faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. Uh, so here we actually uh, jump back to before the walls of Jericho came tumbling down to that time when the spies went into the city of Jericho to, to scope it out. And Rahab the prostitute gave those spies refuge when uh, the, the leadership of the city realized that Israelite spies were in their midst. And, and Rahab recognized that the God of Israel is the God who conquers for his people. And she asks the spies to remember her. She trusts in the fact that God will rescue her if she turns to him. And so ultimately, Rahab and her family, they are rescued uh, as, as Jericho is overrun. So in each of these cases, we have distinct pictures of God bringing deliverance for his people. And as we think about God's deliverance for his people, that what I want to do this morning is I want to take a moment and just reflect in three, on three particular points of truth that are not only uh, immediately applicable for us, but they would also have been significantly appointed for the first audience of Hebrews. And as we think about this, uh, we can be helped to see what it is to live a life of faith that's not only recognizing the... Uh, uh, the, the aspects that have already been highlighted in Hebrews, like faith looks forward to the future, faith uh, trusts in the Word of God, even though uh, what might happen isn't clear yet, all of those kinds of things. Here we have this particular focus on the deliverance of God, and as we think about the deliverance of God, in that sense, we really hit right at the center of what the preacher to the Hebrews has wanted his audience to take away. Because right at the center of the message of Hebrews is this reality that there can be no deliverance from God. There can be no salvation that comes from God apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. We must be people of faith. And that faith manifests itself in its, a, in its unique trust in God's deliverance program. Which of course climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, and so what I want us to think about here is, is just this connection between belief or faith, trust, pick whatever word uh, you like the best there, uh, trust in the Lord, and in particular, the fact of His deliverance. And we're just going to draw out some implications uh, from this text this morning. So we'll kind of be back and forth, back and forth through it a little bit. Uh, the first thing we're going to notice is, uh, as we think about faith in God's deliverance, is that... Uh, a life of faith in God's deliverance exists for those who are in needy positions. A life of faith in God's deliverance exists for those who are in needy positions. Now, on the one hand, it might seem like kind of a, a silly thing to say that. It might seem like a trite comment to make. Uh, but what we need to recognize is that in each of these instances, there is a, a particular uh, effort made on the part of the preacher to highlight the needy, the needy nature of the people as this deliverance came, came to them. Uh, so, for example, in verse 28, we obviously see that the people of Israel there, Israel there are in deep need, not only just for release from bondage, but they're in need because the angel of death is going to come. To, death is coming to the land of Egypt, and they need rescue from that. There's deep need reflected there. 
And then, and then, of course, in the, in the sea situation, there they are with their backs against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's coming with his army. Obviously, deep need is reflected there. Um, same thing is, is there for us with the walls of Jericho. This is a nomadic people. How are they going to conquer this city full of warriors and, and this wall all around it? They need that help in order to do that. And then finally, of course, Rahab there. Uh, she's in a needy position, not only as one who's in the city that's going to be destroyed, but even in her uh, condition as a prostitute. Uh, what, is, what is it going to be like for her to find salvation? She need, she's, she's a needy person as well. And as we, as we put that together, it's helpful for us to camp on that for a moment, simply because the life of faith can be presented to us in such a way that the need we have, the deep need we have, is in a certain measure... Uh, often overlooked. In other words, the dialogue can go something like this. Uh, if you are really being a faithful, upstanding, believing Christian, you won't ever find yourself in a place that's despairing. You won't ever find yourself in a place uh, that recognizes weakness. You won't ever find yourself here because you're living that Christian life. We can call it that higher Christian life where things are going well. And because I'm believing in Jesus, I should never have to feel myself in this low condition of, of, of desperate need. And, and what, a, what a section like this does is it comes to us and it helps correct those kind of notions that can creep up. Uh, because in the context of our lives as we go on, believing in Jesus and trusting in Him, far from being uh, constantly uh, steady and sturdy and, and having nothing shake us whatsoever, far from that being our experience, very often our experience is the deep reality of our weakness. We feel the deep realities of our weakness as we battle against sin. We feel the deep realities of our weakness as we struggle with the discouragement, depression that can set in. We feel the realities of weakness as we make decisions that, that maybe took us in a direction that wasn't the most fruitful. We wish we would have done something different. We feel the realities of our weakness. And what it means to live by faith is not to be in a proud posture of saying, I'm actually just fine, thank you very much, I don't need any help. But instead, the life of faith is quick to turn its eyes toward the deliverance of God, recognizing that, in fact, we are very needy people. We are very needy people. And in fact, it's just interesting to have, uh, to have different conversations. I, I shared that I had a conversation earlier this week with someone who's a friend of mine across town, not connected with our group here, but, uh, but, but he was speaking about the, the significant discouragement that was, that was present in a couple of his, of his friends' lives. He was, they were both in very dark places. He was worried about them in, in very big ways. And even as we were talking, he uh, was, was uh, concerned that I would think that was silly because I was a Christian minister. He was concerned that I would think uh, there was a kind of silliness to the fact that people might be discouraged. Shouldn't they just lift themselves up and, and go on? In fact, he kind of made a comment uh, to that end to me. But oftentimes that can be people's perception of faith. If we're faith people, we're strong people. If we're people of faith, we're not those who, who end up needing to seek out help and support and those kind of things. No, we're sturdy and we can go on in our way and we can do just fine on our own. And what a passage like this reminds us of is that faith in God who delivers is a faith that is exercised by people who find themselves in significantly needy positions. And that's just something that we need to be prepared to encourage each other and even in conversation. We can have conversation with, with fellow Christian believers almost to the point where they're uh, apologetic about their weakness. I'm, you know, I'm sorry I'm going through this. I, can't, I really can't believe this is, this is something I've got to deal with and I'm, I'm sorry about all that. Sorry to bring you in, these kinds of things. But we want to be able to say, no, actually... 
This is exactly what we would expect in the Christian life. These periods of difficulty, these periods of heaviness, we are people first and foremost who by faith recognize that we need deliverance. We know this about us. We not only need deliverance from death, like the Passover represents, but we need deliverance from those imminent dangers that come toward us, like back up against the Red Sea, here I am in the face of these things. We need deliverance from all kinds of different aspects in our life. We need rescue, we need upholding, which of course was critical for the first audience of of Hebrews to understand. They needed to understand that it was not okay to be in this place of merely going along in a way of relating to God, kind of however felt most comfortable to them. But instead, they needed to relate to God in a way that acknowledged their deep neediness before them. It wasn't okay for them to to simply be idle in their apprehensions of faith and think maybe Moses' way could work a little better than than Jesus' way. It would be a lot less trouble after all. No, that, that wasn't okay for them to do at all for the very specific reason that neediness can only be fulfilled by God's deliverance. And so what, what we are mindful of as we come to a passage like this is that we can be recentered in our own expectations of faith for our lives personally, and we can also be trained in what it looks like to help others along in their faith as we engage in corporate life together. These seasons come, and for some of us uh, to, to encounter times of difficulty at times when others of us are not, and then others of us are de- dealing with it, when others are, this is part of, of the Christian life, and the weakness that's represented in that is not actually something that's contrary to belief, but it's actually something that's expected in the life of belief as we turn to this God who upholds us. This is why Hebrews 4 matters in the book of Hebrews. Why do we turn to Jesus for the deliverance that he offers? Well, he's not the one who remains far removed from the, from the temptations and the trials and the, and the difficulties that we face. No, he's the one who can absolutely identify with them. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by his closest friends. He knows what it's like uh, to to face those temptations and yet not give in all the way. He knows what it is to come into a broken world and and pursue righteousness all the way to the end and the pains that that represented. Even his own spiritual depression that it represents. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is why we need to be quick to turn to Jesus and see the one who is actually there to uphold us in our weakness. And so, and so that's the first thing we want to notice from this passage. In each of these instances, we find people here in their significant place of need. And as we think about a life of faith in God's deliverance, we want to be mindful of the fact that that is not the odd thing out. That that is not the thing that surprises us. But instead, that's an aspect of the Christian life, the life of faith, that we should not only expect personally, but be prepared to help others go on in their own life as they experience these things just in our, in, our corporate, in our corporate life together. So, faith in God's deliverance. What do we have? We have great neediness. That's the first thing. And then as we think about this, this passage in, uh, on God's deliverance, we also have uh, a reminder of His particular rescue. His particular rescue. So, if, if we're going to trust in God's deliverance... Uh, what we have to do is not only recognize that, uh, that it's, it, it's, it is to be human to need that, that rescue that he provides, but we also have to re- recognize the unique and particular way in which that rescue comes. In fact, we could even say we need to recognize the strange way in which that rescue comes. So, so do you see that if we, I mean, we're very familiar with these stories, I would presume for the most part. These, these are familiar stories to us that are being referenced here. 
Uh, obviously, the preacher to the Hebrews thinks they're familiar stories because he doesn't elaborate on them much. They each just, just get one verse, even though they're huge stories. Um, but but as, we, as we think about these things, you just notice the, the, the strange nature of the rescue that's presented here. How, how is Israel going to be prevented by, uh, from losing the firstborn males in their family as the angel of death passes through Egypt? How are they going to be rescued from that? Well, you're going to need to kill a lamb and dip the thing in the, the hyssop in blood and then wipe it across the door frames of your house and then you'll be delivered. Now, we, we know the story and that's just, that's just the story. We know it well. It's familiar to us. But, but, but doesn't that strike you as kind of strange? The angel of death is going to pass through and this whole lamb brushing, this whole situation is going to take care of that for us? Why did, why did they even do that? Well, we're told by faith Moses instituted that. By faith he believed that this was God's way, that he was going to keep his people safe. And so Moses said, this is what we're doing. And the people did it and they were safe. But we have strangeness represented in each of these stories. There they are against the Red Sea. What are they going to do? How are they ever going to fight the Egyptians? Well, you notice a little later on, uh, the, the, the God makes the, the waters fall down on the Egyptians after they're going into the water. Why couldn't he just have caused some, some uh, you know, chariot trouble a little ways down the road? That would be a lot easier if they just all had chariot trouble and, 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 and couldn't really make it all the way. That would be a, a, a normal form of deliverance. But what does God choose to do? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I'm going to do, he says. I'm going to use a strong east wind all night long to part the waters. You wait here, and then you're going to cross in between these huge mountains of waves. And then when they try to do it, I'm going to crush them with those waves. Hmm. I mean, if I, if I had written a list of ways God could save us, it might have included a bunch of boats. But it probably wouldn't have included that one. What a strange way to preserve his people. And yet, what do they do? By faith, after a little bit of grumbling that Moses has to sort out, by faith, these people trust in God's provision. They cross the sea. They're saved just as God said they would be saved. Same with Jericho. How's the Jericho situation for a strange method of deliverance? Well, I'm going to need you to march around the city uh, for six days in a row. Make sure the priests are out front and the warriors are ready. So you're going to march around the city for six days. On the seventh day, you're actually going to march around the city seven times, and then you're going to blow a bunch of trumpets, and what's going to happen is all the walls are going to fall down. What in the world is that? Why don't you just uh, give, give those spies who are already in the city some kind of secret access code? They could get us in, and we'll just do the work on the end. That, that I would get. But this whole wall's falling down around this. What kind of deliverance is that? What a strange way to do things. It doesn't seem like that's the logical, the logical way that things could work out. And yet that's how God is acting. And then there's Rahab. You know, if God's going to save anybody in the city, who would we expect to be saved in the city? Well, certainly not the lady who's by trade engaged in an impure form of work so regularly. That's not what we would expect in terms of saving from personal disaster. Wouldn't we expect somebody who might align more with us as, as Israel in our moral compass? You know, that whole thing you gave us on the mountain, those 10 things, that, that, that's what we would expect. Bring somebody to our group that, that aligns with these kinds of things. So you, you look down through this list and you recognize that in the midst of God's saving work, time after time after time after time, how strange his methods seem. They seem so strange. They're unexpected. We would never think that God's deliverance is going to come this way. And yet, by faith, these people are trusting in the fact that God said, I'm going to save you in this way. He saves them in this way. And what do they experience? The deliverance of God. Fast forward to the context of the Hebrew believers. What has been made very clear from the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, there is one way for humanity to be delivered. 
There is absolutely one way and one way only. There is exclusivity in terms of the deliverance program of God. All those other deliverances from before, they've all been pointing forward to this one climactic way to be saved by God, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the fact that God sent His Son into the world so that through, the, through Him, the world could come to a saved position before God. The Son who came, the Son who suffered, the Son who was tempted yet without sin. All of these things. Jesus came, died on a Roman cross, no less, was buried in a tomb, ultimately rose again. What an amazing reality that is. This is how I'm going to work salvation for you. To which the Hebrew believers must have been able to say, you know, that seems strange. That seems strange. In fact, that's something we can say. That seems strange. That's something our neighbors say when you tell them about it. In fact, I, I, th this week I had the opportunity to talk to somebody who I've kind of been talking to about the gospel, but we never really, really got there. This week we sat down and talked about it. It was a huge answer to prayer. And I could just tell while I was talking to him about the gospel, he thought I was totally nuts. He thought I was nuts. What, what a crazy, what kind of crazy, no, Jesus, he was, he was confirmed as a Lutheran, he told me, as a young boy, and he's, ever since then, he's thought this was all crazy. Right? And so, so, so what are we doing with this? This sounds so odd that God would bring deliverance by sending his son into the world to die on a cross so that by trusting in him, he pays for our sin and we can go to heaven uh, be, and be with him because Jesus did what's necessary to get, this all just sounds so strange. But what we have to recognize, and we have to recognize this especially in a world full of options, is that the Bible, and not least of all the letter to the Hebrews, makes it clear that while the deliverance of God may seem strange, we actually come to expect that based on the way He's always worked, pointing forward to the coming of the climactic Son. This is how God, He does things in ways we don't expect. The sea parts, the walls fall. All of these ways. This is how God works salvation for us. I never would have seen that coming. And into, cre into the created order enters God's own Son in order to take away the sins of the world. It's an amazing thing. And the people who first heard Hebrews would have had to understand there actually can be no other option than trusting in this means of deliverance that God has brought. It is particular. It's exclusive. They couldn't have opted for uh, point three of the options for getting over that, uh, the Red Sea. God didn't give them these three choices. Here's one for you. They couldn't have opted for the other, the other uh, wall-tumbling alternative that, that God opted. No, no, no. There's a way God says He's going to work. There's a way God says He's going to bring salvation. And in that alone is the way we'll be saved. There's exclusivity in Jesus Christ. That's what's being made so clear to them. You can't go back to Moses' way. That's, that's the point of Hebrews, even, even though that was, that was a way ordained by God. But all of that was pointing forward to Jesus. There's no going back. And for us, we have to be able to say the same thing. We want to be able to say, we love the world around us. We want the world to know God. And while there may be in people's minds all these other ways that I could be okay with God or I can have the divine experience or whatever it might be, we have to be able to say, for them, say to them, you know, this might sound kind of weird. In fact, it can come across as kind of strange, but I need to tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus' particular deliverance that he offers for all those who will believe in him. And it's going to be like nothing else you've ever heard before. But I promise you that in trusting in him, you find the God who works mighty deliverances. And so we just need to recognize the particular factor that's represented here in a passage like this. These are all strange expressions of deliverance, which, which the author, the, the preacher here, kind of seems to like to highlight, doesn't he? I mean, he, he brings up 
Just kind of the, the weird parts of the sprinkling of the blood. Huh, interesting, okay. They crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. It's almost as if he's highlighting. Do you see the, the idiosyncratic nature of this stuff? It's just different. But this is what we're called to trust in as we come to Jesus Christ. It can be very easy to find ourselves saying, this way to be okay seems like it might be better. In fact, it can be easy to say that actually under the broader scope of God's deliverance in Christ. Uh, we, we trust in Jesus Christ and we can be there. But then it comes to those other things that set in. You know, like, uh, uh, like, like, like the angry words that we speak. Or like the lust that we're trying to deal with in our minds. Or, or the selfish ambition and these kinds of things. And we think, you know, I'm actually going to be reaching outside of what I know about Christ to have some help with some of this stuff. Just so I, just so I don't have uh, this, this burden on me anymore. I, I trust in Jesus, but, but you know, th there are these other things over here that I'm, I'm really going to rely on to make me a, a whole person. And what we need to be able to see is while there can be extraordinarily helpful things outside of Christ, ultimately what we need to know is that within Christ is the newness that we need ultimately. We can have helps here and there to bring us along in certain ways, but we need to be able to see that in Christ as I'm mortifying the flesh, to use Paul's words, as I'm putting on those righteous things, taking off those unrighteous things, as I'm working forward in salvation, in salvation progress by God's help, I'm relying primarily on the fact that Jesus is the one who brings these ways to us. It might seem strange. Can you imagine when your friend came up and asked you, how are you dealing with your anger? I notice you've been, you were really angry. You're not as angry as you were now. Imagine if you said to them, well, well I've actually been doing this whole putting off and putting on thing. So, so uh, Paul, the apostle, he talks about it in Colossians 3, where instead of uh, running away with anger all the time, I'm actually trying to put on gentleness. So I'm actually actively trying to speak in gentle ways in order to squish down the anger that would otherwise be there. Our friends might look at us like we're a little bit crazy speaking in those kind of terms. But this is exactly what Christ called us to, to go forward in his means of deliverance, a life uh, that is lived reflecting the righteousness of, of, of the gospel uh, in, our, in our interpersonal relationships and so on. So, put all that together, we see there's strangeness involved in this, but this is what we've come to expect. This is, God works in mysterious ways, the hymn writer says. And the climactic, mysterious way he works is through Christ, his person, and the means that are provided through the scriptures. And we rest in that. So, uh, we have not only that by faith uh, we recognize our condition as being needy uh, before God as we, have his as we seek uh, deliverance. But we also have this reality that that deliverance can come in peculiar ways. And then lastly, we just need to say, and this is slightly different than the first thing we talked about, and that we need to say, his deliverance comes for the, least, for the people we least expect. And this is, this is just right at the center of the gospel, but we need to have this in our minds. Uh, it's, it's not just that these people were weak in, in this passage. Israelites, they were in slavery, they were weak. It's, it's not just that there was weakness here, but there's actually a significant farness from the holiness of God that's represented in this passage. The amazing thing after reading Hebrews chapter 6 is that we even talk about the people getting into the land uh, where Jericho is at all. What, what is the history lesson from the Israelite people been so far in the book of Hebrews? Well, it's been this faithless generation. They're not trusting in God's promises and all of a sudden here we have an example of them in the land and not only being in the land, but God fighting and conquering for them. So there's this, uh, not just neediness, but there's actually a kind of, moral absence of rightness 
that is reflected in God's deliverance toward people, which of course is, is climactically present in Rahab's example here. We think about the city of Jericho and all the people there who are going to come to destruction as God's people come in, the battle that's going to be fought, all of those kinds of things. And we recognize that God's kindness in bringing her to a place of faith so that she trusts in the deliverance that's there is a significant reminder to us that it is not uh, the, the uh, well-doing uh, folks of society. It's not the ones who have uh, managed to uh, make sure all the, I's are cro- all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed and have a nice, clean and tidy life. It's not those folks who, first of all, uh, come to salvation as we read the Scriptures. As Jesus himself says, he didn't come uh, for, the, for, the sick, for the well, but he came for the sick. We recognize in a passage like this that Rahab is the model of faith. is something that we all ought to just glory in. Here she is, obviously, living as a prostitute, morally far from the Ten Commandments that were not delivered so long ago, uh, just up the mountain by Moses to the people. She's living in a place, in a condition that is morally opposed to the uh, ethics of the people of God, even as they're moving through the desert and all of those things. And yet here's somebody who's ultimately gathered into the people of God, so much so that she's David's great-great or great-great-great-grandmother, And she herself is in the line of Christ. It's an amazing thing that she would be gathered into the people of God and then continually highlighted, like we read in Matthew's gospel, continually highlighted as one who was brought into the worshiping community of God. And so we're just reminded of the fact that God's deliverance is not for people who are cleaned up and all sorted and looking looking really, really good and sparkly on the outside. The, The Beatitudes, as we think about them, they don't begin by saying, blessed Blessed are the uh, wise of heart and those who always do the right thing and, and, and those who have lives that are cleaned up and orderly and all of those things, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that it's not just the fact that we're weak and need help in terms of deliverance, but it's those who are morally corrupt under God and turn to Him in faith that find the deliverance ultimately that He offers as He gathers us in with His people. Which reminds us not only to take great comfort in the fact that God has saved us. What separates us from God? Nothing can separate us from God because of what Jesus Christ has done. He makes that way, though we may be morally far. Jesus has paid for that in order to bring us to God. So we have this eternal love based on the works of Christ that bring us to that point of safety. That brings us enormous comfort as we think about our own lives, whether historically or even presently as we're, as we're navigating and wrestling against sin, these kinds of things. It is broken people. It is people who have struggled with deep immorality that God gathers into His community and brings them salvation as they believe in Him. And we need to remember that first and foremost, not only for our own comfort, but also for our purpose in evangelism. Who are we speaking to about the gospel? Are we speaking to people who seem to have it all cleaned up and they'd make such a nice addition to these, uh, to these services or whatever it might be? Who are we speaking to about the gospel? We need to be praying for and looking for those who might seem so far away because you know what most of all we see in the Scripture? Those are the kind of people who Christ is bringing in. Those are the kind of people who Christ is bringing in. Of course, the gospel's for the cleaned up folks too with the shiny cars and all of those things. Of course it is. The gospel's as wide as the world is wide. But what we need to understand is there's a uniqueness to the good news about Jesus that's meant to draw those in who ultimately would be left far away by all logical deduction would be far away from God. And God does that for the purpose of showing the the glory of His own love. And so even in our evangelism, that motivates us. 
I look around, you know, I have a few people I could speak with. I'm actually going to angle first on this person who seems so far, far from Jesus. And actually, they might be most angry if I bring him up, which kind of happened to me this week. But these things happen. Okay? They, think, they think you're nuts to talk about it. But at the end of the day, we recognize that it's those who are furthest from Christ who we least expect that Jesus reaches down. And what does he do? What's the great grace? Well, he gives them the gift of faith. By grace you're saved through faith. And this not of yourselves is a gift of God. He puts them in Hebrews 11, chapter 1 territory, and he gives them that down payment of heaven in their heart, that title deed to heaven in their heart that causes them to look up and see Jesus is the one I need. And from that point on, uh, they start to learn what it is to follow Jesus. And so, and so in all of this, as we think about God's deliverance, we just can be uh, formed in a unique way in terms of our own perspective. We need to recognize that people of faith are people who are needy people. We're needy people. We need to acknowledge that and we need to be prepared to support, uh, support each other as we face those needy times. We're needy people. God's deliverance comes for us in that time of need. We also need to see that God's deliverance comes in particularly uh, strange ways. Most of all, in the fact that he would send his son into the world to save us. That doesn't seem uh, like it would be the immediate place my mind would go as I think about God's deliverance. But that's what he does, and that's what we're going to trust in. That's what we're going to speak about to other people. And then ultimately, uh, we need to also see that it comes to say God's uh, deliverance comes to those who would otherwise seem so far uh, from his community, from his moral standards, from these kinds of things. It comes to save those who are at their lowest in terms of uh, significant and deep moral failure. And, and for that, uh, all we can say is we're so thankful that he does because as we search our own hearts, we recognize that that certainly is us. We're people who have been morally far from the, the gift of God's forgiveness, and yet what has he done? He's brought us in. Not because we deserved it, but because he's the God who gives faith to people who don't deserve it. And for that, uh, we are eternally thankful. So faith in God's deliverance. We're encouraged by, uh, by the truth that's here for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful that your word comes to us and gives us the help we need. We pray that this would be an encouragement to our hearts this morning. Uh, we know that uh, your word is performative, and we ask that it would be performative in our hearts today. Would it encourage us to look to Christ and the sufficiencies of all that's offered in him? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.